Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's good to be back. It's four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And I'm here until 5.30 this afternoon. This week, Oni Wilson in India. We heard Oni last week arranging for three young Afghan women to travel from India to, from Afghanistan to India. And then Oni with two Afghan women from here and a number of Australian women travelling to India to meet up with them. And it happened. So now we're going to hear what happened once they were in India. A forum on human rights in the Philippines happened over the weekend. I'll be speaking to Peter Murphy, talking about what it was all about. Moves against pro-Palestinian activists at Sydney University. Jake Lynch, Associate Professor Jake Lynch, is under fire again from the Zionist movement and Jewish students. Threats to expel him from his position once again. I'm speaking to Jews Against the Occupation, Vivian Porjolt. And Iran yesterday and today with historian and author Brian McKinlay. But let's first see if Mr Kevin Healy's survived Easter. A week, Jane Lister, when we celebrated one of our great religious events, the opening of the footy season. No, no, seriously, great religious event, and over in the dear baby Jesus' home country, the poor innocent. Well, if evil countries could practice the love and peace that Christian religion brings to the world, evil countries that are crucifying the peace-loving. Example, as the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy and peace, nuclear-armed nations attempt to prevent non-peace-love and non-liberty, freedom and democracy-love and evil Iran from developing nuclear weapons, peace-love and Zion has attacked any deal with evil Iran. The only way to deal with evil Iran is to nuke it off the planet, peace, love and Zion declared. Uh, what, so, so you're admitting you have nuclear weapons? We are neither confirming nor denying. Notice the nuclear-armed lovers of are so devoted to their love of peace they are prepared to travel all over the world, send train killers all over the world to bring peace to the world, to non-peace lovers, to others. And that they love peace is obvious because none of the peace-loving nuclear-armed lot need to be invaded by someone else's trained killers. Thank goodness evil Iraq well, now good, or evil Afghanistan, now good, for instance, don't invade the US of the UN of the US of the world or true blue Aussie, but only because we've gone there to defend ourselves and bring them the benefits of Christian love, dear baby Jesus' love in the process. And I'm sure no one could suggest they're not so much better off thanks to our invasions and a bit of trained killing. Christian love trained killing. 
in that spirit, the world would be but would be a better place if the riffraff would see the world as their caring employers see the world. Caring employers who understand there is no such thing as class struggle. Poor caring employers being crucified by the myopic evil and that neutral economic advisor Ian Harper in heaven delivered his unbiased report on how the economy can work better for all of us. A major recommendation being that fines for union secondary boycotts be increased from a crippling 750000 to a mere $10 million real figure. We have to prevent caring employers being crucified by evil unions and workers who continue to act as if there is still class struggle, class warfare in this country. The caring employers who so love their ingrate bludgers with great Christian love realised long ago that we are all equal, caring employer and ingrate worker. Now we have to listen to Ian, especially at this time of year, because when he was appointed to determine the annual minimum wage decrease by the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo in the last even darker ages, he told us he sought guidance from the dear baby Jesus. So clearly the dear baby Jesus must realise it's good for the lowest of the low paid riffraff in this classless society to enjoy the benefits of a wage cut. So the dear baby, well for a couple of days there, the dead baby Jesus, but the dear baby must also know it's good that evil unions be hit with a $10 million fine for refusing to see this as a classless society. And the Chamber of Profits submission to the Productivity Kangaroo Inquiry into non-class relations says awards must be abolished. Unions have no place in negotiations between caring employers and their ingrate workers and wages must be reduced in the interests of those ingrates. Caring employers must be allowed to decide what's good for the riffraff. This is the sensible centre because the balance has swung too far toward the evil unions. The last thing we want is to return to work choices. But the workers are crucifying their caring employers, Ian being neutral said. The workers are crucifying us, the caring employers said. Uh, then how come I can see it's the workers up there on that cross? They have to learn to stop crucifying us, to realise we are all equal. Uh, any neutral, neither on one side or other, comment Ian? Amen! Jesus, when we hear those voices of reason, let's hope the workers on the cross who are crucifying them don't rise up. I'm just sitting here trying to work out which bits of the caring employer's submissions aren't the torn up bits of work choices. Well, obviously none, because they tell us that's the last thing they want. The Fairfax media happily reported yesterday that its rival, Lord Rupert of Wapping's empire, paid a crippling 4.8% tax on cash flows, or 10% on operating profits, by siphoning lots of money off to its New York parent. Well, Lord Rupert obviously feels a commitment to his U.S. of uh, homeland, which became his homeland for the very purpose of improving his tax arrangements. So why attack poor Lord Rupert for achieving what he set out to achieve? <laughs> 
And anyway, his true blue Aussie big supremo brackets temporary, because with Lord Rupert they're all temporary, Julian Clock, the tax department, said the news we want you to get limited's financial reports complied with the true blue Aussie law, which probably says something about the true blue Aussie law, but more particularly, it's the least we would expect, because readers of Lord Rupert's news, he wants us to, to uh, get, no, he is a stickler for law and order. Lock him up and throw away the key. So the last thing he'd want to do, want to do is break the law himself. That was P1 in the Fairfax paper yesterday morning, but Lord Rupert gave us the news he knew he wanted him to give us. Yet another exclusive expose of evil Islam, terrorism in our midst, Jihad Star Chamber, screamed across P1 of the whopping sin, while inside the usual suspect, Lord Rupert Lackey, said the mob who protested Saturday to get all Islams out of the country, preferably not breathing anymore, were just expressing their right to free speech. And how dare those long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden-worker and iron lefties deny them that free speech? He managed to mention, just by example, how his free speech had been curtailed by the biased, one-sided legal system which ruled against him just because what he wrote was totally untrue. How dare they attack my free speech right to tell lies? Wonder if that 4.8% took into account the millions Lord Rupert got back off the tax department when he sued them for wanting to tax him in the first place. Picture on P2 of the whopping scene, another terrorist atrocity. This eight-year-old girl holding a commemorative coin honouring trained killing and terrorism. How dare the terrorists brainwash dear innocent little children. Oh, so, sorry, hang on, I've just read on. No, 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 she's a, she's a true, true blue Aussie holding a coin to commemorate a hundred years since Turkey knocked us off when we invaded them. The dear innocent eight-year-old is being educated in the values that forged this country. No brainwashing there. Can't make out what's on the coin, but surely it would be appropriate to have a true blue Aussie trained killer twisting a bayonet through the heart of a Turkish defender, and on the obverse, a Turkish defender twisting a bayonet through the heart of a true blue Aussie trained killer invader. And on both sides, looking down on the death scene, a baron of true blue Aussie industry rubbing his hands together and counting the profits all this is sending his way. They would have been all hymns in those days. Oh, and speaking of rubbing his hands, as the profits flood in, Lord Rupert is providing a free collector's album for the coins. Fourteen different themes. And then, readers can buy one of the 20-cent coins each day for a mere $3. That's only a 1,500% profit for Lord Rupert. Less possibly 4.8% intact, although hopefully the 1,500% will land in the US of very quickly and be tax-exempt. Then this morning, foul facts again. True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review this time. The big True Blue Aussie, of which we're all so proud. BHP for bloody huge profits and Rio Tato the profits channel lots of their profits to Singapore. 
BHP, in fact, sending them to Singapore. Well, it sells our iron ore to China through its Singapore branch at massive profits over what Singapore pays True Blue Aussie and then sends the profits to Switzerland and then to the Netherlands, all of which ends up costing them all of about 2.5% in tax. Poor dears. Bloody huge profits describe this Thimble and P-trick as our marketing organisation and said tax treatment had nothing to do with it. Obviously just an accidental little side benefit. There's obvious logical reasons why you'd sell cheap to yourself in Singapore, sell expensive expenses to China, transfer profits to, etc. Well, well, it's marketing organisation. Lord Rupert would be aghast that anyone would attempt to avoid paying tax in True Blue Aussie or anywhere for that matter, although the only tax-related stories in his media through all this were the sundry chambers of profits telling us tax is killing them and must be reduced and retirees could be forced onto the pension if they lose tax credits on dividends. So finally, just incidentally, that could also affect Paul Lord Rupert and the law-abiding shareholders of bloody huge profits and Rio Tato the profits and their mates. An accidental little side disbenefit in this case. Good afternoon. Well, he sounds as though he had a good Easter and also he had a good birthday. And you can hear... <coughs> hear. Lose my voice in a moment. And you can hear more of Mr. Kevin Healy at 9am tomorrow morning, right up till 10 o'clock on the program City Limits. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986, and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Last week, 3CR broadcaster and supporter of Human Rights for Afghan Women spoke about the first part of a journey to connect women from three countries, Afghanistan, Australia and India. The aim of which was for the Afghan women to attend training in self-sufficiency with the Indian group, SIWA, the Self-Employed Women's Association. Today, with the visitors all having arrived in India, the second part of the journey. From then on, it was fantastic. The, the three girls were very shy uh, when they first arrived. Um, Shaheen speaks um, uh, a good amount of English. The other two, they have learnt English uh, to a certain degree and, and they can understand it, but they were very reluctant to speak English. And that's certainly where Gula and Farida were fantastic because they were the... They, were the communicators really, but the you know, the two from Faroe Province were very shy at the beginning. But after we'd gone through this process of of six days training and the magnificent program that we went through, they transformed like you know butterflies in <laughs> little grubs in a cocoon to butterflies. They just sprung out the other end, and they really were change girls, and definitely a life changing experience for them. They'll never forget this. It was. Even even um, one night we went to the pictures. I mean, they'd never been to the pictures. 
So here's these, you know, girls in the, in the early 20s sitting up absolutely beside themselves with excitement at a movie, an Indian movie at that. At that. They were really inspired by the whole program and they came out the other end, uh, as we'd hoped, like really enriched from the experience. And where actually did the training take place and were they with other women as well? Right. The Self-Employed Women's Association, their main um, school uh, headquarters is in Ahmedabad, uh, which is from a little bit further northeast than Mumbai, inland. And it's an amazing organisation. I think they've got 1.3 million members. Can you believe that? <laughs> I'd and imagine that they don't pay big fees. <laughs> no, they pay five rupees. And actually, they were saying that you know, the costs have gone up a bit. They're actually, they're, this year's membership is 10 rupees, which is like about two cents or something, hardly anything. But um, a very lovely atmosphere to the organisation, very caring women, extremely competent women who have over the many years, worked out a formula for uh, for empowering poor women, particularly in remote areas. It, the formula is perfect. Like it, it works extremely well and that they really can be congratulated on the, on the work. So our training took place there in, in Ahmedabad. You are listening to 3CR broadcaster and activist Oni Wilson speaking about her time in India where she with Afghan women, both from Afghanistan and Australia, training with SIWA, the Self-Employed Women's Association. It was sort of a building. Just an ordinary uh, building that you'd find anywhere. Factory, in, like a factory? Like, just like an office, you know, a, a modest office building, as you'd find in Ahmedabad. We did uh, go out to the rural areas, so we went out for about an hour and a half to one rural area, and then up further north to about two and a half hours to and uh, and another on the way back, uh, which were three projects that they have got running. One which was a textile project, so they have women who are sewing, making embroidering, things like cushions, etc., and, and also making stunning men's shirts as well. Another one which was grain growing and, uh, and spice making, and they, they produced that. And the other one was an echo farm where they are working on um, plant production. So three quite different projects that, that, that women are, are working on. That was a really a privilege to be able to go and, and be, to meet these women and to see how they were progressing. And it was astonishing that like one woman, um, and she, she was quite a robust you know, woman, and she said, you know, when, she, when Sewa started this project, um, that she was shy and she never went out of the house and you know, the group got started and she got more confidence and she started to be more public in the community and now she's been to the US on a speaking tour. So this woman who looks like a very rural woman uh, has become you know, an international celebrity really for talking about her work. And the other one, she had a shawl over she said, this is how I started and she pulled the shawl right over her head so you know, her face was completely covered and she said, now look at me and she threw the shawl back and said, this is how I am now. They were inspirational projects where these women who, who have had nothing, the project, how they actually organise it, they will go to an area and they'll talk to women as to what problems they have and so it might be you know, they haven't got any water so they have to go five hours somewhere. So they'll try and solve that problem and then that gets you know, some confidence that, that we're with them as well. And then they'll suggest that they perhaps you know, 
become a group together and that they try and save some money together. So even if it's like one or two rupees a month or whatever, that they put this in as a collective amount of money and over time it's then available if they want to lend it some way and they have to make the decisions around all of this. And then they also look at um, what things in the area might be something that they could become economically involved in. So it could be sowing or it could be making chutneys or it could be um, selling fruit of some sort or a grain and then they support them in the whole process. So they support them in in the uh, in the setting up of it. They support them in having uh, people who are in the industry giving them advice as to what would be viable and what would work and and then they support them by helping them in the, the actual selling of it in the market. And they, they also can, can help um, provide um, loans as well for them. But it's, it's a very simple, and they, they also involve, have training. So in this group, they will take a number from the group back to Ahmedabad and they will teach them uh, in leadership training. And they also will then take them to, for long periods to in, in skill training as well. It's very thorough and it's very simply done, very gently done. It's not you know, writing out of books. It's it's little practical exercises and, and little stories that they tell. Very effective. And what were your women learning? Uh, learning a little bit of, about the process. So they, we had some sessions which were about um, forming a group, uh, the role of of leadership in the group, of again of looking at financial necessities of the group and record keeping etc so they they had a little a bit of a brief uh, look at each stage of what needs to happen in in setting up a group and getting it going and I think they were mainly motivated because when, when we had spoken to them originally they they were talking about a sewing project as being something that they could do but when they started seeing other things they started saying well we've we have got a lot of fruit that grows in our area we could we could make chutneys and they actually have to, uh, uh, Sewa has already established an, a group in Kabul. And this was with finance from the Indian government. So they already have worked with Afghans. And so they were talking about what that group was doing. So this, again, gave the, our Afghan girls uh, a lot of ideas. So is it unusual for them to go outside the country to do it? No, it's not. No, and they're obviously, while we were there, there was a, a contingent of fellows, actually. There were some from uh, from Sri Lanka and there was uh, some from other parts of Southeast Asia. Sewa itself, how it organises, has got a very good reputation. Actually, there were pictures of Hillary Clinton on the wall too. She, she'd been in there at one stage. I'm not sure what project she's involved in, but... <laughs> But um, they, they certainly are recognised. And it, it was, um, we were fortunate on one of these days, uh, they have a regular time when representatives from different projects will come in and talk about what they're doing. So this particular day was one of them and they, they had, a, it was a large group of, of women um, who came. And these very, again, very rural women who were standing and talking extremely confidently about what they were doing. And um, at one stage, a woman came in and the whole room went into a sigh, a collective sigh. And it turned out to be Alabart, who's the founder. So she's a, a woman now, I suppose she must be in her close to 80s, I guess, who is obviously revered with great, great passion for the work that she's done. That was very special for us as well. And I'd imagine there were some cultural things that happened at night. Well, what did you do for... 
nighttime entertainment. Well, we sort of took over the place where we were staying. I think they were completely bewildered by this group of women. There was a lot of keenness to, to, to do some shopping. And uh, like after the Afghan girls themselves, they well, to start with, they really wanted to get cardamom seeds. I mean, they, their mothers had told them that cardamom in India is the best. And they came back with like a sack of cardamom seeds. I, mean, I don't know how they're going to get this on the plane. <laughs> but they, it, it Is was, it a big city, is it? It's, it is a big city, a very big and bustling city. It's, it's not your usual tourist city which we loved because it meant we, we weren't bumping into tourists and actually the, the city was the city. It wasn't moulded around the tourist trade at all. But there's lots of little markets, um, street markets and, and emporiums and uh, that, that the girls could go to. And, we, and, of course, eating out, we, of course, we went and ate at lots of places and had you know, adventures in eating as well. So that, so that was good. And we went to the went to the zoo one, one time and wandered around there. And actually, it was quite surprising that the thing that they really loved was, and we went to one museum area which had a big garden around it, very large premises, very beautiful and, and quiet again, you know, compared to the bustle and the horn blowing and the craziness of only just a few blocks away, this very peaceful place. But it had a little park with swings in it, and that's what they headed for immediately. And um, this is what happened when Melalai Joy was staying with me as well. The thing that she got most excited about, about, apart from ice cream, was the swings which were down in the park. And this is a woman who's 30 or so. And another night they also, with, the, with um, Gula and Farida, found another little park where they, they were swinging to their heart's content because they don't have anything. And actually um, it was Gula and Farida who were talking, saying... Have you got anything like this in Farah? And they said, no. Like in Kabul and Herat have both got a women's garden area, which is a secure area where women only go and with, with children and they they can set up stalls or just meet each other in this park. And so you know, Gula was saying, oh, this, you know, this would be fantastic to be able to do this. So it worked out it, for about $2,000 we could actually offer one of the girls, um, uh, Negan's father, to oversee setting it up. And we thought, wow, this is amazing. Like we could set up a park for, for kids and, and women for about $2,000. So that's on the cards for the future too, to see if we can do that. Just wondering about these women, do they have children and do the children come with them or they leave them behind and hopefully a, a father will look after them? It's Siwa. Um, the children come with them to the business, what they're doing. And actually we, we, t- we talked about to them too, saying how does this affect, how has it affected your family relationships and your, your husband? And, and they, they were saying at first like the, the men were not very happy about it, but they saw how it was really improving everything and they came on board very much so. So it, it actually, by the women developing and being empowered, the whole community has really blossomed because of it and and um, by women too having some money it meant that the children have had more schooling as well so there's been an improvement in in that way. I imagine it must have been pretty difficult for you to organise it all and especially with a group of nine. What were the highlights? The highlights of the trip I, th- I think were well definitely were, were meeting the sea were women and the women in the projects like it, it was it was truly a we were very fortunate. So to just go, I think when when you travel, for me, just going as a tourist and bobbing along on the surface really doesn't do a lot. But 
by actually connecting with people who are there, you really have a completely different understanding of what's going on. And the young woman who was looking after us too, who, who really, she acted as interpreter often for us because the, the, often the, 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 the teacher um, was speaking Urdu and the girls could understand that we couldn't. So um, Gunjan was the, her name and she, she was um, doing interpreting back for us in English as to what was being said. She's fantastic. Oh, she's about 26 or so and she's uh, uh, got a master's in engineering. I mean, she's a, a very bright and competent young woman. Um, she's, she's saying, uh, I could get a job doing something and, and earn quite good money, but I want to do this. I want to be involved in this. And the same with the other women who were working there. They, they all said the same. We, this, this is really our passion that we're doing. And also I was really impressed. They were saying that the, the most senior person in the organisation doesn't get more than four times the wage of the lowest person in the organisation. And I think our aid agencies here could learn very much from that. The organisation too, I think we were very conscious of how gentle... I think one of the projects that they have um, in their um, their business that does the spice production and it, uh, Rudy is the label that translates to pure and simple, like purity and simplicity. And that's perfect, you know, like it's it's perfect. So there's not heaps of money and there's not, you know, power mongers and there's not um, prestige. Purity and simplicity is just the essence of what you need for me that was really a highlight of of the whole thing that really stood out very strongly as a model that like coming back here and even coming and looking around thinking oh we lose a lot like we've we've really lost the plot in a lot of ways there's so much to be learnt from um, purity and simplicity in what we do and what did the three young women say that they would like to do when they go home they would like to start something up in there in Farah province. The first thing that they thought would be good to make a connection with the other group in Kabul. So uh, I have to speak to Gula and see how she, her plans are about this. She was thinking of going back perhaps in April to, and we could get the girls to Kabul. That's easier than getting them to India um, to meet up with the with the other group that's that's in Kabul and uh, to make a connection to find out now how, how they're going, how they've structured everything and how security and what have you works for them. But their long, longer-term plan is to, to try and get something. And it might even come through trying to set up the, the, uh, the playground for the girls and, and children, um, even getting some women in, you know, interested that way. That might be a, a means of doing it. They certainly want to, want to get active. And they said there's lots of others, lots of other young girls uh, and women that they know who really want, they're just hankering to get into something to, to make improvement in the, in the country. Well, it might have been two years in the making, but it was very successful in the end. <laughs> it was. I was hoping it certainly got from the beginning to the end. It was really, you know, a hair-raising ride half the time. But um, it, it, there were lots of tears on the last day, actually, for the fact that we, it had happened. We'd all got together. We all had arrived. Everyone was safe. We, we had this amazing experience and we actually had a, a plan for the future. It was very sad saying goodbye to them. We shared a few tears together. Yes. An important part of, of Sewa too is the fact that they're based on Gandhi's philosophy. So again, that this, the idea of purity and simplicity, that's, that's linked to his, his uh, view of, of life as well. Uh, so that's something that they take on board. The, uh, our role, really, of, of being 
there, us, us four non-Afghans, was really as a background, was really only trying to facilitate that the thing actually functioned in an administratively sort of way because the, the dynamic of what was happening was the focus was on the Afghans and certainly it was how they saw it and what they wanted to get out of it and what they wanted to follow on was the important part. So it's it's not our role to be saying we've got this good idea and we, <laughs> it's all written down here, you just have to go and do it. It's the complete reverse. So we were, we were giving them an experience. We hoped they would get something out of and get some ideas of where they wanted to go and then tell us what they wanted our role to be as background for this. And it was um, a key thing of having uh, two Afghan friends from here as part of it. They were very instrumental because they, they straddled two cultures. So they certainly could make the connections with the, the Afghan girls, but they could also offer uh, information that they have from being as members of Australian community. So they were vital in ha- having it. If, again, if they hadn't have gone, it would have, it would have been 10% of value of what they got out of it. So they, when, when anything happened, they were sparking uh, as well to, to you know, add new bits of thought into for the girls. So um, they were, played a key role. And that's Annie Wilson talking about her recent visit to India with Afghan women from Afghanistan and Afghan women from here in Melbourne. And you can hear more of Oni and Helen on Thursdays between 6 and 6.30. Their program is called Feminist Focus. And if you'd like to look up the Self-Employed Women's Association, the easiest way, I believe, is just to log in S-E-W-A and you'll find lots and lots of information there. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR. Spreading the seeds of dissent. Political activist Peter Murphy spent part of the weekend at the MUA. And when I spoke with him this morning, I asked him what was on the agenda. We were holding two forums that were connected. One was to launch the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines uh, in Australia and the second was to focus on 
an Australian national campaign on, on mining c- companies in the Philippines, Australian mining companies in the Philippines. So a strong human rights uh, dimension to the, the mining issue. The first one was to update people about what had been achieved since 2013 when there was an international conference held in Manila to initiate this new coalition to try to get a deeper understanding of what we could do in Australia and get more organisations concerned with human rights in in whatever way actually to decide to join this coalition. And what other countries are involved in the coalition? Actually there's um, people from, well organisations from Europe, North America and Asia and the Pacific, so Australia as well, involved in it. So it's actually uh, strongly the balance of uh, membership organisations would be church-based, uh, especially in Canada and the United States, to some extent in Asia, and uh, also some trade unions and uh, you know, directly uh, human rights lawyers and, and groups like that. Well, people not familiar with the Philippines might be asking the question, why do you need a, an international coalition for human rights in the Philippines? Yes, in uh, the sort of popular mind, there was a terrible situation in the Philippines under Ferdinand Marcos, and then in the popular mind, that was sort of fixed up by the People Power uprising in, in 1986, and that since then, you know, the Philippines is more like a normal country. But in fact, the uh, level of political violence is really consistently high and uh, scary, scary in some of its uh, worst manifestations. So to try to reach into the international community more clearly, you know, that there's an ongoing problem, it was decided it was necessary to have this coalition created to, to really elevate the expressions of concern that have been there all along. For instance, in 2009, in November that year, there was 60 people killed in one massacre in uh, Mindanao. Uh, there were people trying to lodge an, a nomination form for a provincial election, plus the uh, media contingent and some lawyers, and they were all massacred. So that made an impact, but then it sort of subsides from the uh, sort of concern of the international uh, political elite and the media, and so it disappears from sight. But in fact, all along, there's uh, trade unionists, uh, peasant uh, leaders, sometimes lawyers, just being uh, abducted and disappeared or just killed out in the open. This includes priests and it's going on um, pretty terrible rate actually in the Philippines. So we really need to uh, increase the level of concern. So getting more organisations to consciously decide to take part in this is a really important element of, of doing that job. Just explain why, if you can, Peter, there is such a terrible situation in the Philippines. One answer to that is just to say that it's never really had a democracy for very long at all. In fact, it's not the norm. Uh, Instead, the norm has been domination by a foreign power like Spain or the United States or Japan, back to the United States, plus a local elite which uh, gets its wealth from exploiting the people on behalf of that foreign power. And that's really still the situation. If a uh, powerful family or person feels like uh, they're getting blocked in in an investment or some arrangement's not working correctly, they don't really normally go to court or have a discussion. They send out somebody to uh, threaten and then to kill. So it's very much the norm in social life in the Philippines for this to be there. And people are very aware of it and, and cautious about it. On the other hand, 
because this is so long-standing social situation, resistance and uh, organised opposition, organised democratic movement, that's also a normal part of it. <laughs> but it's a movement which is, you know, in combat more or less. You know, it's, it's always up against this uh, crude, violent repression. You have to take your hat off to the Filipino people who stand up for what's right and take the risk, you know, that they'll get retribution. Uh, and they're doing that. And, and we're seeing that these sort of people are the ones primarily targeted. You know, they're not people uh, with guns themselves. They're people who try to to use uh, proper processes and uh, speak up for their rights and try to win their rights that way. And so, you know, they're defenceless against this uh, brutal repression, actually. And then, as you said, lawyers and journalists who stick up for them and try to publicise what's happening, they get the same treatment in some cases. Yes, and it's quite recent. You know, just a few months ago, um, there was a case where a, uh, a woman lawyer in the, in the northern part of Luzon in the Cordillera was uh, attending a court hearing for some uh, people who, who had been harassed. Her assistant, like a paralegal guy who was older than her, warned her that she should take more care of herself, you know, that there's somebody following. Somebody's following you, you have to take more precautions. And so she, she sort of uh, acknowledged, you know, that he'd said that. And then later, at the end of that day, he, he was abducted and killed. That guy himself, who was more more alert, you know, was killed. And then since then, like in the last few weeks, I've seen reports of that woman being followed, having uh, text messages on her phone threatening to kill her and, and asking for assistance from different organisations in the Philippines to help her. So this is this is what goes on. And one of the group of people who suffer a great deal are the Indigenous peoples and that brings in the mining companies, doesn't it? That's right. So in the last, say, three years, the number of people, especially in Mindanao, who are leaders of their Indigenous communities who have said no to a mining project, the number of them who have been killed is, is really alarmingly high. I'm, I couldn't give you a number, but it's, well, over 20 people. And um, sometimes they're killed in twos and threes. And there's militias uh, which are financed by mining companies or local warlords who go around threatening communities to uh, allow their land to be taken and dug up and destroyed. Uh, at the you know the threat is you know we'll kill we'll kill people if if you um, get in the way. There's one particularly huge mining project which got an Australian connection. It's uh, at a place called Tampakan, south of Davao city in Mindanao, that's on the eastern side of uh, Mindanao. It's, a, it's the, they say, one of the biggest gold and copper deposits in the world, and if the mine was built, it would be a world-scale open-cut mine. Uh, but it's high in the mountains with uh, five rivers coming out of that area, and so it would be a environmental devastation, something like Octeti in, in Papua New Guinea. The uh, Balaan people, are the, the indigenous people there, and, and yes, there's been evidence presented in the Philippines Congress that the mining company, which in this case at the time was Extrata, but now it's Glencore, is regularly paying money to the military to provide security in the mine project area. And uh, those military forces, you know, sort of machine-gunned a house with a woman and her three children in it early one morning in 2012, and and early in 2013 they went after the the brother-in-law of the woman so only one child survived out of all of that. So it's it's a pretty you know, outrageous case, and and it has been made a very significant case in in the Philippines by getting it into the Congress and getting this evidence. But it shows that a company operation run out of Brisbane by Glencore does pay the military, and the military do these things to the local people. 
thing that we in Australia have got a particular role to play in bringing to light and trying to uh, get that corrected. How do they answer those charges? Uh, they haven't had to face anything yet because uh, all that's happened is in the court, uh, sorry, in the Congress, you know, one of the uh, security advisors or consultants of the mining company did, did admit that these payments were being made. And an issue, well, how, do, how does the family then get some charges laid against some officers? And, and the military themselves have said they're taking disciplinary action against the, you know, the captain who was in command of that company of soldiers who did the shooting. But whether that's like a demotion, you know, what, what will it be? It's like internal to the military, this terrible record of them doing no, virtually nothing. So the, the family and the Human Rights Alliance in the Philippines, they have to find a way to get some charges laid against people who, who help make these decisions. They, they will do their very, very best to do it, and I expect something like that will happen. There's a few other cases where this is, has taken place. senior military officer called uh, General Palparan was finally charged with uh, abduction of uh, two women students way, way back in 2007. He was only charged in, like, 2013. But the, the case is, is still afoot, and, uh, of course, the military have protected him you know, enormously from any trouble with this case, but uh, it is sort of on foot. So that's that's uh, a, a step forward. Just looking at it from the environmental aspect rather than the, you've been talking about the human rights, yes. are activists worldwide concerned about this? Are they activating to help the people? Well, again, we, we've got a, um, an international people's mining conference organised now to take place at the end of uh, July in the Philippines. So it's going to focus, of course, on Philippines cases because that's where they'll be. But it will also take up similar problems happening with mining projects in other countries, especially in South America and Indonesia. But again, what we're in the process of is, is building a international focus on this sort of problem. Because of the social and political context in which the mining projects take place, you know, they're, they're virtually prone to virtually no environmental control of any consequence, plus this kind of repression uh, built into their operation. They're the two angles that the mining conference is also working on. Later today, Peter, you'll be attending a demonstration here in Melbourne? Yes, where one of the... Uh, Another Australian mining company is uh, Oceana Gold, which has got a uh, an operational mine in uh, a place called Didipio in Luzon on uh, eastern side. Uh, we had a fact-finding mission in uh, the end of January, early February, go to Tampakan and also to Didipio, and they they reported uh, yesterday to our conference here in Melbourne. And uh, so, as a as a part of that whole work, you know, we we all take part in a protest outside the offices of Oceana Gold at um, 357 Collins Street uh, at 11 o'clock this morning, so pretty soon I'll be on my way there. But uh, at the DPO, the project finally got underway only in 2012. They've been going, trying to get that mine up since 1989. Local resistance had, had really held it off for a long time, but unfortunately it's it's been built and uh, the company doubled the size of the mine without any further environmental processes at all soon after commencing construction and uh, I've been to that place myself so all of the rice fields, the whole river, it's all, it's all just been dug up and there's a giant hole in the ground and um, the, the wastewater coming out of the mine has got about 1,000 times the level of copper content in it that sh- 
should be, you know, according to the normal standards. So it's it's completely unusable for agriculture, stock, and certainly for people. So this is a, an environmental impact of that mine that's uh, very much concerning because the rivers flow into the Cagayan River, which is the main river on the eastern side of Luzon Island, and tens and tens of thousands of farming people rely on that river. Were there any efforts to stop these people going there to see what was going on? No, it's... Um, you know, there's been a few different uh, fact-finding missions and uh, generally uh, you can you can enter the area and have a talk to people. Sometimes there's uh, checkpoints and, and so on, but in this case, the provincial government is uh, opposed to the mine because, uh, in, in the immediate sense, the mine is um, not paying any taxes to the province. So they, they're really annoyed about that. Um, but, but the community, that is, the, by and large, the people of the whole province are really alarmed about the impact of this this kind of mining on their environment and their future livelihood so politically speaking you know, there's a lot of um, support for critical assessments of what's going on in in these project areas the next task for you is july yeah the end as i said in in manila there will be an international mining conference and we want people from australia to take part in that we also have, going back to the Coalition on Human Rights in the Philippines, the Coalition is, has organised an International People's Tribunal in Washington, D.C. in July 15 to 18, which would really examine carefully many of these cases that uh, have happened under the present uh, President Aquino administration for just the last few years, really. Um, but there's plenty of really bad cases to to examine to highlight the really extreme situation of human rights in the Philippines, and so it's, it's an exercise to really draw international attention to the to that situation. So that's also in July. Yeah. So I think that there there are two immediate priorities. And that's Peter Murphy, who's a, a Sydney political and human rights activist, talking about the forum that he attended over Easter at the MUA and. The demo this morning, 11.30, outside Oceana Gold against the Didipio mine in the Philippines. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 An open letter is circulating to the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University, Dr Michael Spence, urging him to resist the concerted campaign against Palestinian activists at Sydney University, i.e. take action in response to events at Richard Kemp's 11th March lecture and subsequent calls for him to dismiss from the University Associate Professor Jake Lynch and Dr Nick Reimer. Vivian Porchold from Jews Against the Occupation was in the audience at the 11 March lecture. But first, Vivian, who is Richard Kemp? He's a retired British colonel. 
He was brought out by the United Israel Fund as a speaker. He's a Christian Zionist. There are a lot of tweets on the um, internet showing him saying some really racist things. He claims the favourite name for Arab kids is Adolf. Just explain what a Christian Zionist is. A Christian Zionist are Christians who support the Zionist movement, the so-called return of Jews to Palestine, the land of Israel. But for them, it's the um, forerunner of Armageddon when, when everyone will be saved. In the meantime, they're very supportive of Israel and Zionism. doesn't mean they're, they're especially fond of Jews, but they're very fond of Zionism. Was this public lecture just one part of his visit? At, U- well, at the it was university, just a line, because his main line was to speak at the United Israel Appeal. This wasn't a, a United Israel Appeal, but he was simply giving a lecture on the ethics of uh, war with non-state actors. He claims that um, Israeli Defence Force is the most moral army in the world and makes every effort to minimise the loss of civilian life, etc., etc. Um, so he's an outright propagandist and. Um, from my point of view, shouldn't have been hosted at a university forum. This lecture was put on by the um, Department of, I don't know, it's got a long name, but it's uh, it's Jewish Studies, among other items in in the the title of the department. And what happened during the lecture? Well, about 10 minutes into the lecture, I was in the lecture, as were other people who, you know, support Palestinian rights, and about 10 minutes into the lecture, a group of about a dozen, I understand mostly students, came in um, with a loud hailer and interrupted the, the, the lecture and called out that um, he supported genocide. Um, you know, Richard Kemp, you can't hide, you support genocide, and um, continuing. And then they called the, the security people um, and who began to forcefully remove the students from the room. Then um, Dake Lynch was present. He wasn't part of that demonstration, um, as was um, Dr Nick Reamer, also of the university, coordinator of the Sydney Staff for BDS. Jake got up. People, people all over were taking photos with their iPhone of what was happening. There was a woman, uh, an older woman in her 50s or 60s, who was hitting at the demonstrators and throwing water on the demonstrators and kicking at the demonstrators, and it began specifically kicking Jake. Um, I didn't see this myself, but I could hear on the tape he was threatening to sue her. And there's subsequent tape in New Matilda, if people want to check it out online. He, um, to to emphasise what he was, he said he'd sue her if she kept on kicking him. And she kept on kicking him. She didn't stop and the security did nothing, absolutely did nothing. And he took out a banknote out of his pocket and, you know, said, I'll sue you, I'll sue you. And you can hear that clearly on the tape. And this has been construed as an anti-Semitic incident, shaking a banknote in front of a Jew, supposed Jew. And the Vice-Chancellor, uh, Dr. Michael Spence, has set up an investigation, a pseudo-investigation, as I'll explain this shortly, into what was claimed anti-Semitism. There were loud claims of anti-Semitism against Jake. So here we have this student disruption. Um, you know, I, I think they're entitled to to do that, and I don't think they were wise to do it, but I think they're entitled to, because this Kemp man says, some, says and does some horrible things. So, but the campaign is against Jake Lynch, which also has the background of the question when he was um, prosecuted unsuccessfully by the um, Israel Law Centre uh, because he supported boycott, divestment and sanctions, BDS. 
So now the Vice-Chancellor sets up this investigation and he calls in this outside law firm, supposedly. We, as Jews Against the Occupation, wrote a letter and I you know, wrote to the Vice-Chancellor and said that there was nothing anti-Semitic said at that meeting at all and any claims are mendacious and are continually used to, um, to silence criticism of Israel. And so we sent that letter, and, and because of that, and because I was caught on some of the video, I was asked to be interviewed for this investigation. Okay, so I go to this investigation. There are no terms of reference. There's no university policy under which this is being taken place. So I go, I still go and decide, well, on the balance, it's, it's worth putting out my side of the story and have that on record. But it turns out since that, in fact, this woman is a member of the staff of the university. Investigations have been um, conducted in the building, in the department, where she, in fact, is employed, according to the university directory. She simply has this separate law firm of her own, which many people do, and that's okay. But to hire someone and claim that you're running an independent investigation is outrageous, and the whole thing smells to high heaven, and it's very shonky and very problematic. And that the university allows itself to be used. I mean, it was the Australian University of Jewish Students, for example, have circulated a um, petition calling for the dismissal of Jake Lynch. And um, Kemp wrote to the Vice-Chancellor calling for the disciplining of Jake Lynch and Nick Rema. So the whole thing's quite disgusting. So now there is an open letter online for people to um, sign calling for the stopping of this persecuting of both Jake and Nick. And um, it's a very vigorous campaign being conducted on the most flimsy of um, beginnings and the, that the university allows itself to be lent to this. I mean, the Australian Union of Jewish Students seems to have open door with the Vice-Chancellor, whereas the um, um, National Teachers Education Union has, has, does not. Um, it gets the same, but not in the same way. So there's a very smelly situation with the university in the way it's aligning itself with a very rigorous interest group. So in a, so in a sense, it would, would it be expected that there would have been some sort of demonstration with this man speaking? Oh, you'd expect a demonstration. And for mine, you know, the, they were blocking the lecture from going on and so I think it was legitimate to have to have them removed. But they didn't touch this other woman who was physically beating people or trying to. So that, that, that whole thing, there's a much worse incident that happened at the university, you know, when Gillard was there and various politicians come there and they have all kinds of things but they don't go to the expense of hiring an out, so-called outside lawyer to do a, um, an investigation. Uh, on such flimsy accusations. Were any of the students injured? No, no, no one was injured. They were they were manhandled, but no one was injured. In terms of um, the um, the kicking that this woman did and the hitting, I've not heard of any injury as a result of that. But she certainly made body contact with her with her attacks. She certainly assaulted people. There was an online petition by the Jewish students. Is that correct? Correct. Yes, for dismissal of Jake Lynch and Nick Reem. Um, uh, Jake Lynch, sorry, not Zerna. Jake Lynch. And what's happened to that petition? Well, that's closed. I don't know the result of that in terms of its impact. So there's been a letter calling for the cessation of um, persecution of um, university staff who are simply um, standing up for human rights. So this is all about um, staff supporting BDS, do you see? Uh, the ethnic and Jake are part of the um, uh, Sydney staff for BDS, indeed. And what was Nick's role in the, the day? 
he was simply in the audience. He did nothing at all except be in the audience. And um, I think maybe um, trying to address the students or something, but uh, there was no... Well, no, Jake did nothing untoward either, uh, but all the firepower was being directed against Jake because he, in fact, did something in terms of BDS by refusing to um, sponsor um, an Israeli lecturer who came on the basis of a fellowship, um, which is a, a scheme between Sydney University and the Technion University in Israel. And that was the basis for the um, refusing to sponsor him as part of the boycott. So do you see, or does he see, an ongoing campaign within that university to remove him? Oh, certainly this is part of a campaign to remove him, without a doubt. And the fact that the university has so completely lent itself to this campaign by giving sufficient credence to the initial allegations to... And he had evidence in his hand that, the, that other people were saying this was not the case. He had to set up an investigation at all in the, on the basis of that. It's very flimsy and shonky. And now we find the actual investigation itself is totally um, not just flawed, but, but totally um, wrong. And what's the timeline for this investigation? I don't know. I, don't, I know the um, vice chancellor wants it to be quick. He, I mean, he's since sent another letter that he will deal firmly with anyone, you know, found guilty of any um, breach of the staff code of conduct. Do you know of other universities clamping down on pro-Palestinian groups? I'm not aware of specific examples. I mean, you may be more aware of things happening in, in Melbourne than I am. All right. Well, how do people get a copy of this letter if they'd like to sign it? Oh, I haven't got the actual details in front of me and I haven't got my computer open. Just simply um, Google Jake Lynch and Kemp and I think it should come up and Vice-Chancellor, Sydney University. Those words should bring it up. OK, Vivian, thanks for all that. OK, thanks, Jan. And that's Vivian Pauljolt, who's from the group in Sydney, Jews Against the Occupation. And if you'd like to find out more about Richard Kemp there's quite a lot on the internet just google or whatever in Richard Kemp and just find out what this man really stands for and if you'd like to sign that open letter Jake Lynch open letter Kemp all those words will find the open letter for you to sign if that's what you wish to do it's now one minute past Five o'clock, and you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station, Jan Bartlett, and I'm here until 5.30. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Finally, in Tuesday home time, historian and author Brian McKinlay. Jan, today it's appropriate, I think, to talk about the recent developments regarding Iran and its uh, nuclear power agreement with the major powers and look at not the matter itself, which is the subject of great controversy and, uh, and mention in the press and the media, but looking at the history of Iran in the way in which it is a sort of picture of the 
effective Western intervention in the region, which we've become so used to in our lifetime, and the effect on Iran itself. Iran, of course, I like to hear it used in the old term, use its name, that is Persia, because Persia was and is still one of the oldest civilizations and one of the oldest nation states, if that's the word. The great Persian Empire went back four or five centuries before Christ, uh, and indeed longer than that in terms of its extent. And Persia came into the consciousness of the West when in the 4th century BC, Persian imperialism extended to the Mediterranean and, of course, famously brought Persia into conflict with the little Greek city-states of which Athens was one. And ancient Athens fought two battles with Persia. The first, when a Persian fleet uh, landed troops, the Persian emperor at the time thought that Greece should swear loyalty to his empire. It wasn't a particularly uh, dire demand, but the Persian Empire should absorb, if that's the word, Athens, uh, and then the Athenians should live under the rule of the emperor but run their own affairs, and that would apply to the other Greek city-states and the Persian fleet. In a very famous battle, landed troops north of Athens on the coast, and having established a camp and got themselves organised, the Greeks from Athens sent a force north and attacked them under cover of darkness really and in the early hours of the morning the Athenians attacked in fact a very lax and unprepared Persian army at a place now famous called Marathon. We all know marathon racing in terms of foot running and, and the Olympic Games. But of course it got its name from a famous young man called Theodipides, a Greek, who ran to get help from the Spartans. He was a runner and had actually taken place in the ancient Olympics. Lacking emails and telephones, the Athenian leaders sent to their old rivals and enemies in Sparta, begging them to come and help them fight the Persians and Theodipides did that but got no help from the Spartans and ran back a, a tremendous run back to, um, to Athens and died obviously of a heart attack he was I suppose a healthy young man but there's just so much running you can do the Olympic marathon is run over the distance of something like 30 miles, I think it is, in the old measurements. And that was about how far Marathon was from Athens. Well, the Athenians won this unexpected victory and the Persians retreated. And that didn't suit the Persian emperor at all. And he resolved now to bring the Greeks to heel by a more drastic measure. And taking his time, he assembled another army and this marched across what we would now see as Turkey. And uh, because Iran or Persia butts Turkey and the, they've got a frontier on the... Um, far east of Turkey and the far west of Iran, uh, they marched across Turkey, across the Dardanelles, near Gallipoli in fact, famous old battlefield there, and then marched down into Greece from the north. And this time the Greeks were really in trouble because he brought a vast army and a fleet. The Athenians had a fleet of some uh, 
account, uh, but uh, the Athenians uh, sent to the priestesses at the famous shrine at Delphi, who gave you a prophecy for payment, and uh, were famously obscure in their property, a bit like public opinion polls, really. And the priestesses told the Athenians that there would only be salvation in a wall of wood. And some of the Athenians took this to mean putting a wall of wood around the Acropolis. Uh, that didn't work. The wall of wood would be wooden ships, uh, as they subsequently found, and as the Athenians resisted, there was a great battle north of Athens where for a few days a, a force of Athenians held up the Persian army. But eventually they reached Athens and the Persian fleet turned up. And there the Greeks won a, a naval victory, a massive victory over the Persian fleet, which meant that the Persian emperor and his army now in Greece were cut off from their supply lines across the Mediterranean and across Turkey. He had no alternative now but to retreat. And the Greeks followed him, inflicting defeat after defeat upon the Persian king, who now had trouble even crossing the Dardanelles uh, near Gallipoli, where his ships had been destroyed. And uh, to follow that up, the Greeks carried the war to his home base and invaded Persia itself to a city called Persopolis, where not far from Tehran, where uh, he suffered another defeat and the Greeks, for good measure, burned his capital. So suddenly Athens had emerged as a world power in the ancient world and the Persians never again had that experience with the West. And after that, the Persian Empire gradually declined as the Greeks and later the Romans spread across the region, though the Romans never pushed further than the great river systems of Iraq. Beyond the Euphrates, as the Romans used to say, lay Persia, and it wasn't worth their trouble to try and invade Persia. And never again did they do that. And But, of course, Iran, given its strategic uh, location on the edge of the Middle East, close to Russia, close to India... It's always been a great area for armies and cultures and ideas to spread. In the 8th century, when Islam appeared, Iran, Persia, I'll call it by the old name, converted to Islam, but to the Shia variety. And so Persia remains, and always has been, the only major power that's Islamic. Uh, today, this is also true in a way of, of the bottom half of Iraq, which leads on to the present great influence that Iran is exercising in Baghdad, where much of the Iraqi army is being trained and under the influence of the Republican Guards, the elite force of the uh, Iranian army in Tehran. Now, converted to Islam, that didn't save the Persians from, on occasions, being invaded by people like the Mongols. And later on, they were conquered by an Arab force from Baghdad. Relations between Persia and the Arab world were always difficult because they had different brands of religion, basically. Much of the Arab world, most of it, is Sunni. And uh, there were other problems. There's an old Arab proverb which says, there are three things that God should not have made, 
the deserts, flies and Persians, <laughs> which sums up that ancient rivalry between the Arab world and the Persian civilization. Persia, of course, gave the world all sorts of things over centuries of civilization. Persian, Farsi as it's called, is a separate language to Arabic, not a bit like Arabic, I understand, because I don't speak either. But uh, there is a separate alphabet, a long tradition of cultural achievements, including remarkable architecture. Shia Islam, unlike uh, Sunni Islam, which is fairly austere and Puritan, almost Protestant in a sense. No, Shia is Islam allows great ornamentation in its mosques, not human figures but elaborate tiling which is a great feature if any of your listeners like to look up Persia or Iran on the web and look up architecture you'll see these remarkable mosques and structures and indeed that use of tiling spread from Persia right across the Middle East in the distant past the Persians invented what they called paradise now, paradise in European languages and in English has one meaning, a, a place like heaven of, of great endless pleasures and delights. But the word paradise in ancient Persian meant a great garden. And the Persian Empire, uh, much of Persia is, of course, hot and dry. In the northern part of the country, they have a quite different climate around the Caspian Sea, which is subtropical. But the Persian culture made great use of tiled buildings. It's one of the great features. Other things, Persian carpets, because in Islam you take a carpet into the mosque to kneel on in prayer. And for various reasons, although all the neighbouring states do so, the Persians excelled in making what we know today, still know actually, as Persian carpets. And of course, there was a small animal that you and I, who are both cat lovers, would have experience with, Jan. Your cat isn't a Persian, is it? I have had a Persian. Yes, well, we have two. We had uh, two cats uh, over a long period. I'm hundreds of years old, so we seem to have had cats since we were quite a young married couple, and our children always like cats. Well, the Persian cat does come, I understand, from those northern regions, the the forests of northern Iran, in the well-watered Persian Gulf area, and um, became enormously popular with the aristocratic classes. And then quite recently, a couple of hundred years ago, the first of them were taken, and cats are difficult animals to transport, were taken from Persia into Europe, where they've always enjoyed enormous popularity. And uh, uh, we never exhibited either our Persian cats, but I know an aunt of my wife's gave us a beautiful Persian, a high-quality pedigree cat who treated all of us like his subjects. And Sasha uh, had a brother who was exhibited and won all sorts of prizes, as his mother did at the Melbourne show. So Persian cat lovers are much taken with putting these beautiful creatures into displays. Brian, do they have big cats as well? When you say big cats... Well, I'm thinking about tiger uh, lion no, size. Uh, the, the Persian cat we know is pretty much, I understand, what it's always been. It's just an, another variety, isn't it? Like the Abyssinian or the Burmese cat, 
all of that is part of the passion that Persian cat owners seem to have. But in the Middle Ages, at the time of Queen Elizabeth in England and Henry VIII, Persia had a golden moment when it had a long-living emperor, a shah, uh, who, in fact, was very impressed with making contact with the West. And in his capital, which is still there, a city of great beauty, I understand, called Isfahan, there's a, an old Arab proverb which is more complimentary, and it says, half the beauty of the world is found in Isfahan, in Arabic. I think that rhymes. And uh, he built a, a remarkable capital of great mosques and palaces and public buildings of all sorts, which are still there. And um, he, indeed, he proposed marriage by mail to Queen Elizabeth of England, an extraordinary alliance it would have been. Uh, and she was pretty amused, I understand, by this long-range courtship. And nothing came of it, of course. But at that period, Persia had attained great prominence in Europe because of its products, like the carpets, which were immensely expensive and much sought after. And also it lay on the trade routes to China and India. I understand, I've only eaten once or twice in Persian or Iranian restaurants, there's several here in Melbourne, by the way, uh, and the food reflects all the cultures around it. You have that traditional Middle Eastern food that we tend to think of as Lebanese food, and, of course, on the other side, it abuts what's now Pakistan, and trade routes to India have gone back to, into antiquity. So Persian food has the spicy quality of Indian food, but it also has the much of the tastes of Lebanese food, which is not so spicy, and it also is um, in some ways linked to, Tur to, to Turkish food. And of course, the trade routes run further away to China. And the, in the Middle Ages, the Persians were the, perhaps one of the first people who, in their culture, took up the practice of using fruit cooked with meats. Now, in my lifetime, lots of people I know make dishes like chicken dishes with apricots or using peaches or prunes with fruit. And the French do that with prunes. But uh, Europeans generally didn't have the exotic summer fruits that the Persians have. Parts of Iran are very fertile, and uh, the Persians took to cooking meat dishes with fruit juices and fruit. So that became a real feature of Persian society. Now, this great civilization, then in the 18th and 19th century, came into contact with the expanding Western imperialist powers. Britain and France, in the main, were, and I suppose still are, the great culprits. Now, both of them had trade, as they did with India and China, uh, and of course that always led on to colonialism. The British, having traded with India, took ports, took uh, treaty ports, as they're called in China, then influenced governments, then brought in troops, and through the 19th century, that was pretty much the history of Persia. To, to make matters worse, they had Tsarist Russia to the north, and that did the same because the northern part of Iran abuts the Caucasus, countries like Armenia and Azerbaijan. And uh, all of that led three great powers, Britain, France and Russia, to interfere in 
Persia's affairs, the British especially, because the British were also established in India. And now, by the end of the 19th century, uh, all sorts of imperialist ventures were underway in Iran, and there wasn't much they could do about it. Indeed, in the early part of the 20th century, in 1905, 6 and 7, there was a democratic revolution of a kind in Iran. The Shah of the time was seen to be incompetent and impotent, and... Uh, the mass of the people were very unhappy, as was the case in India, with the British and the others incur incursions into their country. It led in the city of Tabriz, in the far, in the far west of Iran, right near the Turkish border, to a revolution, really. And this spread across the country, a, a democratic revolution, because the early years of the century in Europe saw great waves of public... Uh, revolutions and, and debates and uh, demands for reform in many European countries. Russia, notably, in 1905, uh, an almost successful revolution forced the Tsar to make great concessions in Russia, which he then reneged on. But all of these events, uh, in 1906, there was what was called the Young Turks Rebellion in Istanbul. And in the Arab world, radical political parties like the Ba'ath Party, which means Renaissance, began to demand political change. Now, that occurred in Iran, of course. But the democratic revolution, with the help of the outside powers, was suppressed by the Shah. And when the First World War came, Iran wasn't directly in involved with the war. But its ports and its railways were used by the Western powers and the Russians. But, of course, in 1917, the Russian Revolution occurred. The new communist government in Russia withdrew its forces from northern Iran and uh, declared that Iran would no longer be subject to Russian pressures. This led in Iran to demands for reform, as was happening in Turkey. If any of your listeners have seen the Russell Crowe film, uh, The Water Diviners, you'll get a, a glimpse of the Turkish revolution of the early 20s under a remarkable reformer, Kemal Ataturk. Ataturk brought enormous reforms to Turkey. He wasn't an Islamist either. Uh, he was an admirer of much of Western culture. Uh, and the same occurred to a degree in Iran, where Shah Reza attempted to carry through all sorts of, uh, a young Shah, uh, to carry all, all sorts of reforms, and did, to some degree, do that. And using the same ideas as Kemal Ataturk in Turkey. Now, in the 1930s, when the Nazis came to power in Germany, Hitler made great effort to increase his support in both Turkey and Iran. Turkey had been an ally of Germany in World War I, but Ataturk was determined that it was war in Europe, and he thought there would be. The Turks must not interfere. They must remain neutral. And he persuaded the Shah of Iran to do much the same, though in fact both in both countries, there was a massive infiltration of German businesses and German agents, Nazi agents, who used business as a cover, and indeed money. The, uh, the Germans gave Ataturk and the Shah of Persia a good deal of money to modernise their railway systems, at which the Germans have always been masters. 
and they did so. And today, Iran and Turkey both have very viable, and in the case of Iran, very modern upmarket railway systems. It's pretty unusual in many parts of, of that part of the world. Now, when the first world, uh, Second World War occurred, German influence in uh, in Turkey was cut back because the Turkish government was determined to stay neutral. But it did increase in both Iraq and Iran, and I'll use that word now, in the hope that pro-Nazi governments might come to power in both countries. Now, when Russia entered the war, when Hitler attacked Russia in 1941, the Russians and the British decided that both Iraq and Iran would be cleansed of Nazi influences and the British Navy and the Russian Army moved into Iran and the same happened with the British in formerly French Syria and Lebanon. Australian troops fought in those two countries in a brief campaign. But in the case of Iran and Iraq, both countries basically came under Allied military occupation. And it was vital to Russia because, among other things, the Russians and the Iranians during the 30s had built, extended a railway system that was there but ran from Iran up through Armenia and the Caucasus, through Georgia, all the way into the Russian system. And as Hitler invaded Russia and the Russian need for supplies was desperate, the Americans and the British were able to send goods from the Persian Gulf all the way into the Soviet Union. And Hitler made a big effort to capture the Caucasus and cut that railway line, but he never did, and was driven back after Stalingrad. And it continued right through the war to be a major supply route for aid to the Russians from the West. Now, when the war ended, the Russians, in fact, had occupied an area of northern Iraq and had set up a kind of quasi-communist regime. And this lasted for a few years until the Russians were eventually persuaded by the Iranians to go away. And they did. But the British and the Americans still remained quite prominent because of the British... Um, control of the Persian Gulf, basically, with their fleet. Later, the Americans did the same. Well, then the next most important event, and perhaps the most important event in modern Iranian-Persian history, was the coming in the late 40s of a democratic reformer, an elderly man, though, called Mossadegh. Now, Mossadegh was prime minister from 1949 onwards, and he wanted to modernise and open up Iranian society and also get rid of the Western powers, particularly Britain. There was a company called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which controlled literally the small but growing Iranian oil industry. And Mossadegh decided in a dramatic move that he would nationalise the oil industry. No one in the Arab world had dared, no government had dared to confront the Western-owned oil companies, which had the backing of Britain and American arms and fleets and everything else. Now, Mossadegh had great public support in Iran. He was something of a hero, indeed, right throughout the Arab world. You must remember that in 1952 and three, Egypt was still under British colonial rule. The Western powers had established, basically, giving their support to the State of Israel. The French had just gone from Syria. 
the Gulf states were all under British control. So Mossadegh's uh, courage was rather remarkable. A few years later, in 1955-56, Nasser would come to power in Egypt and confront the West over Suez. But this was a moment when Mossadegh stood alone, and he did that. He pushed through his legislation, through the parliament. He won an election, then pushed after the election for nationalisation, and uh, the whole oil industry was nationalised. He paid the British for it, but that didn't satisfy them at all. They had no wish to see to pay more for their oil and to see it run by Iran. And that's historian and author Brian McKinlay. And there's so much to talk about the history of Iran that um, we didn't have time to play it all, so the next part will be next week. And just to clear up the big cats in Iran, I looked it up. Asiatic cheetah, also known as the Iranian cheetah, is a critically endangered cheetah subspecies surviving today only in Iran. It used to occur in in India as well, but it is locally extinct. The Asiatic cheetah is mainly in Iran's vast central desert in fragmented pieces of remaining suitable habitat. Although once common, the cheetah was driven to extinction, extinction in other parts of southwest Asia from Arabia to India, including Afghanistan. As of 2013, only 20 cheetahs were identified in Iran, but some areas remain to be surveyed. The total population is estimated to be 40 to 70 individuals, with road accidents accounting for 40% of deaths. Efforts to stop the construction of a road through the core of the Baf protected area was unsuccessful. In order to raise international awareness for the conservation of the Asiatic cheetah, An illustration was used on the jerseys of the Iran national football team at the 2014 FIFA World Cup. If there's only 30, 40, 50 of them, we can understand why Brian didn't know they were there, and that's okay. He said I could read it out after the program. But you will hear more from Brian next week about the continuing history of the country now known as Iran, which was Persia. That's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock. Jonathan is here for Food Fight, so I'll say bye for now. <laughs>